right. So we are super excited to have Sven on our podcast. He's a founder and CEO of an open source serverless headless CMS company called Webany based in Europe. It was a YC company and has really interesting beginnings that we'll go through. The project has about 5,000 stars on GitHub and about a thousand person Slack community. And we are super excited to have Sven on. So where we wanted to start is the company's founding story. Tim and I noticed that it started out as a consultancy and you ran that for a while and then eventually turned into an open source project. So if you could kind of talk us through the history and what the consultancy focused on and then why you decided to start an open source project, that would be a great place to start. The story goes back, I would say, probably more than 10 years. So there's some history to it. Like 10 years ago, essentially, I founded what you could call a digital agency. So a services business building websites and applications for different clients uh, around the world. Uh, we were building majority, I would say, uh, web applications and some websites. So a lot of APIs and things like that. And that's where I assembled a team that grew into like almost 15 people over a course couple of years. And we were building quite a lot of these websites. And uh, actually, the first person I hired is Pavel, who's my co-founder now. And Pavel and I actually have a bit more history before that. We started on the same college together. So that's how we met. Then I started the agency business. And since then, Pavel and I have been working uh, closely pretty much every day, right? Moving forward, like from that agency business, at one point, I decided to scale it down. I've joined as a full-time member to run projects for a company called Akamai. They're the leading content delivery network in the world. I was managing one of their largest global customers for, of course, a couple of years where I actually giving the, so the knowledge I got from the agency days was that building applications, although like it's improving over time, there was just too many holes. Like you had two extremes, you, like when building an application, you could either go very low level by picking a, a framework or a language and then building all the tooling on top of it from authentication, logins, which is repetitive quite a lot, right? But on the other extreme, you had uh, let's say ready-made content management systems, which are great if you just want to manage content. But the moment you need to put something inside that is not about managing content, it might work for a version or two, and then things will start no longer being backwards compatible. Maintaining that would be a proper mess over time, right? So those are the two takeaways that I learned from the running the digital services business. But through Akamai, I learned also that how enterprises operate at scale. So when you have projects where you need hundreds of people to deliver it, Things get very, very messy, especially on the infrastructure side, like DevOps things, managing multiple environments with so many different moving pieces. There's, it's just so prone to errors or building infrastructures that do not scale properly or not highly available, things like that. And to get to those levels, you need to invest significantly more effort than what you might realize at, at the beginning. And that's where I then discovered uh, serverless. Uh, serverless started like 2017, 2018. That's when I kind of got into it. And I saw like, oh, serverless can actually solve this whole infrastructure complexity problem that enterprises have and bring more agility to them and more confidence in running those applications. And uh, at that point in time, I kind of, okay, what is the most common thing you can build for a serverless or that would run on a serverless infrastructure that doesn't exist today? Well, it's a content management system, which I was dealing for more than 10 years and have some experience in how to do that. And so I kind of put those two together, Paul, myself, and uh, one other person, Adrian, who's part of our core team. We built a prototype in 2018 
that we launched. 2019, we launched on Product Hunt, which kind of worked, kind of didn't. <laughs> but the early interest, we were this second top trending product of the day organically. It told us that there's something behind that. And that's where then the company got formed. Uh, we went fundraising, uh, full-time commitment onto this project. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. And so it's not common that we see serverless frameworks and the headless CMS into one product. So coming back to that example that I said of two extremes, like you could either build an application starting very low level, or you could build something on top of a CMS that often breaks, right? We, we, we constantly found ourselves with that challenge every single project we were delivering. And we thought like, hey, why don't we actually build a framework that can be agnostic to use cases, being, meaning that, hey, if you need to build APIs, if you need to add with different types of business logic, different authentication, let's build a very flexible framework that solves the serverless complexities for us so we don't deal with that. And then let's build a CMS on top of that framework, but, but by the fact that's built on top of that framework makes it very extensible, very customizable, right? So that's why we then actually, in building that serverless CMS, large percentile of our efforts was spent on building that serverless framework to solve those serverless challenges, right? And that's how the framework aspect got born. And then the CMS came on top. Now, throughout the last, let's say, year or let's say 18 months, we had many thousand projects, developers testing out the platform, right? And then we were learning what did they need more? Do they need more the framework building capabilities? Do they need more the content management capabilities and things of like that? Over time, we now see that things are slowly focusing more on the content management side. When we talk about the CMS, the, the content management piece of, of Webany, it is a more modern approach to content management. So the WordPress days, WordPress was created 15 years ago. And to be honest, it didn't iterate on how it describes the content. That's why the headless CMS aspects were born, right? But headless CMS also has many drawbacks, meaning that, hey, I just get an API. Where is my website, right? With Webany, we're addressing both of these pieces by providing a headless CMS, by providing a page builder. So think of it as a combination of Stripe and a Webflow, right? If those two had a baby, that would be a Webany. And we are building more, more of these uh, no-code capabilities, everything on top of the serverless infrastructure that runs within your AWS cloud. Awesome. And yeah, over the last couple of years, this concept of headless CMS has kind of blown up in the startup world. So it sounds like serverless is one piece that makes y'all a little differentiated and is open source the other piece or how, how should we think about your differentiation? We got the open source, we got the serverless, we got another keyword, which is an enterprise, and then we got the CMS. When we focus on open source, it's not just being open that users care about. Users care about, about privacy. Some enterprises specifically can't even use SaaS. They can't hold or store clients' data outside their own cloud because it breaks their compliances, right? That's where actually open source comes in. Open source doesn't mean free. It is free, but those enterprises don't want it because it's free. They actually want to pay you for support for whatever it's needed. The key aspect of open source for them means that I can host it myself, right? So that is the, the, the whole privacy data ownership aspect is really important. That's where we're playing a really important game where we... Besides being a self-hosted instance, we will be providing operational 
tools to operate and maintain your instance in a much more effective way, which all aligns with that open source self-hosted notion, right? Serverless comes in a way that traditionally when people were looking at, hey, should I use open source or a SaaS? Well, SaaS takes care of my infrastructure, scalability, upgrades, maintenance. So I don't need to deal with that. Open source is free, but the actual total cost of ownership of open source versus SaaS, well, it works more in favor of SaaS because the DevOps efforts I need to put into maintaining open source is really, really high. But why it's high? It's high because if you need high availability infrastructure to power your application, that is super complex and costly to do. Unless you host it on serverless, which by design, that databases like DynamoDB are highly available, fault tolerant in some cases, S3, those things don't go down. So if you build a system on top of that, where like some of the aspects of serverless is that in certain researches, it's shown that the DevOps effort required to maintain a serverless application is 60% lower than maintaining something of an EC2 instance, for example, a virtual machine. And also because serverless has this consumption-based pricing model that you pay per request or per database operation, you never underpay or overpay. And in traditional sense, you overpay by 70 to 80%. You're going to get so many savings by running on top of serverless that suddenly now open source is way more competitive to SaaS because the cost of managing, maintaining, and scaling is much lower by running on serverless, right? And then we come to the enterprise aspect of WebAnd, which is our focus on publishing workflows, our focus on security, Okta, third-party IDP integrations, our focus on the, these large-scale deployments that you can store millions and millions of records and not worry about going down for Black Friday and things like that. So we've built those things and those capabilities within our product. Multi-tenancy, so one web instance can run thousands of websites. You don't need to install another WordPress instance for another website, things like that, right? So we solve these scaling problems for those enterprises. And then on top of that, we're providing tools for operational excellence, for monitoring performance, monitoring cost, uh, monitoring permissions, all the loads. Some of these things are currently on our pipeline and will be delivered in the next few months, but we're focusing on that aspect. So anybody that is looking for these more competitive, more challenging requirements for a CMS, we're a good solution. But anybody that's looking, hey, I need a small blog, we're, we're not that type of a solution, right? And then the CMS is standard content management, which we are taking a different spin again. We're combining headless CMS with a page build. So no-code solutions to build dynamic experiences, uh, which currently no other option on the market does. I'd love to dig into the open source part of this and your experience and also how you learned how to build an open source community. Because for a lot of founders considering open source as a potential go-to-market slash distribution slash build path, there's not a ton of learnings out there on how to actually build a community and think about the benefits and drawbacks to open source. So how did you learn how to, how to successfully build an open source project? And that one was uh, an iterative process to say the least, right? Because exactly there's not enough learnings and best practices out there. And um, there's different approaches you can take depending on who your target audience is, right? So our target audience, yeah, we're open source and our developers, but there's also a bit more to that. There's people working DevOps uh, roles, managers and things like that. So we need to accommodate for all of that. And part of building open source is more than just sticking your code on GitHub and slapping on an MIT or Apache license. It is, that is the, the, the least of it, right? There's many aspects you need to think about. You need to think about, so how do people actually 
how do people actually set up your project? Because oftentimes, for example, when you set up a project for the end consumer is different than if you want to contribute to a project. The whole experience is different. So you need to provide documentation guidance for all of that. You need to also think about the fact that being open source uh, doesn't just mean my code is open, but when you are architecting your application in an open source fashion, you need to think about what are the integration points that people can have into your source code, like hooks, like lifecycle events that they can then build on top of your code base without actually touching the core. Because the moment they need to touch the core on the next uh, release, there's going to be a lot of breaking changes for them that they're going to have to merge and figure out how to resolve. But if you think about your application as being open application that others built on top, so you have these different mechanisms that they can use to modify the behavior of your software without actually affecting the core base. And that is one of the, the, the more challenging aspects of actually properly architecting an open source application. When you're building a SaaS or closed source application, you don't think about these things, right? But for an open source, that is one of the main things. Like how will a third-party developer figure out what is my type definition for this plugin, which is needed to then change the what happens when they publish a page, right? These are the questions we are getting in the open source community that we need to plan for in the product. And then also you need to think about the support channel. We have a Slack, right? That there's more than a thousand developers now. You need to balance that Slack. One big challenge we found was that the engineering team got very, very distracted at one point with supporting the Slack community. We wanted to support the Slack community, but at one point it was such a big distraction that we could not successfully deliver a complete sprint for months. And then we just had to say, okay, we need to find a better plan. Let's do a batch Slack support. Let's do focus hours and things like that, that we protect the engineering team who is providing the, the support to developers on Slack, but they also need to be able to deliver the new features, fix bugs, write documentation and have just that focus time. So we needed to protect them in a way, but also not distract the disrupt the community on Slack, because otherwise, why would people join, right? And then there's more, like we just started doing these community hours uh, where every month we have a Zoom call and anybody from community can join to ask questions, discover a roadmap, things like that. So you need to provide that supporting material. And on top of that, documentation, documentation, documentation. It is such a challenging thing. You can write documentation, but there's a big difference between quality documentation and just having documentation, right? And it's one aspect we're still struggling, but it's kind of a feedback loop. Somebody goes to the documentation, can't find something, then goes back on Slack and complains about it. Awesome. We note it down. It's now something we need to, we need to fix. So it's one aspect you need to source code, architecting things, getting a support channel in front of people, and then getting the information that developers need to learn about how to use and modify your product. Those are all things that, that need to be connected for in order to say, let's say, have a successful open source product. But then there's another aspect to it. There's open source, open source, and there's commercial open source, right? We're on the commercial open source side because, hey, somebody needs to pay for the engineering team time and the product manager's time to actually dedicate the time and build an amazing experience. If everybody was to work for free, we would have a much slower pace, especially in the beginning, because we don't have a Fortune 500 sponsor that is sponsoring our work, right? Which some projects have. 
which is great, but, but we're on the commercial side. Now there's different challenges, right? On the commercial side, it's how do you actually figure out what goes into open source, what goes into commercial, what can make money, what do people want to pay for, what do they want to use for free, which is a whole other can of worms. Yeah, there's just so many cans of worms. And I think like every founder we interviewed on this podcast touches on similar cans of worms, but also have different cans of worms. And I think I actually want to dive down a little bit deeper. We'll probably go back to the open source uh, specifics, but one aspect I feel like is probably going to be a little bit interesting or challenging for you is you not just have one product, you have two products, right? You have the framework and the Hellas CMS. Is there a synergy between them that you actually find that to be useful when it combined to be open source together, either as a product or community, or you kind of have to treat them totally two separate different products with different teams and different priorities. Because that sounds like it's going to be a huge challenge, right? And you actually constantly figure out how to do balancing both with a small team. It's a good question, right? It's a challenge that we just recently had, and we spent about two months brainstorming around. How we work and structure things internally is very different to the perception of the product we want the public to have, right? Internally, we actually have multiple products. We have people uh, aligned to them. The CMS versus framework question was uh, one that was a a big challenge for us because a lot of people were coming to us and uh, saying that they love what Webinary does as a CMS, but they see the framework as our main competitive advantage over everybody else on the market because all others are CMS and we have this massive framework that allows you to build serverless application of whatever you want to do, right? But when we launched the framework and the CMS as, as a landing page and two separate products onto our website, people had a, a hard time answering the question, hey, what is WebAny? If you just like ask you that because they get, get confused. Some come from the framework aspect, some come from the CMS aspect, but the gist of it is that they can't place WebAny in a box in their mind. And when they have a use case to know which box to open, right? And people were confused about saying what WebAny is, right? So we're now going through this iteration where we're going to position ourselves as a, an open source serverless enterprise CMS. And framework capabilities are actually the feature of a CMS. So we're going to be going down on a very specific niche. And we know why that niche, because of the inbound of the customers, paying customers that we currently have, and all the interest that is coming, and all the pain points we know about that area. So we're going to be focusing on just one, and that's a lesson learned. Better go very, very narrow, very specific, and grow out of that than go big, broad, but that people have a hard time in placing you into a box. So yeah, that lesson learned on us. Uh, but the thing is like, what's really important for a startup is having that agility and understanding the data that is in front of you, right? When we made this decision, we gathered a bunch of data and emotions were set aside. This is what the data is telling us. This is the profile of our community members. This is the profile of uh, hundreds of, and hundreds of lead calls that we had. This is how they prefer to perceive our product. Let's make it easy for them instead of making it hard for them. Awesome. And I want to spend a few minutes talking about the project and what you did, whether it was a combination of things or a couple of specific things to make the project really take off and gain momentum. And also it'd be great if you can describe the metrics you were measuring to really say, hey, this is taking off. Was it a combination of stars and 
downloads or what were your, your kind of dashboards to know that things are really going well and you're gaining momentum? Yeah. So metrics and dashboards for us changed over time and I'm going to explain why, right? But in the beginning, it was like, hey, let's build this. We don't know if it's going to work, if anybody's going to be interested. And we built the prototype serverless CMS and we posted it on product hunt and we got second product of the day completely organic and it was like whoa people are actually interested in this and we got maybe i don't know 200 300 stars and uh, people commenting giving us more crazy ideas what to explore what databases they wanted to see what options features and so on and then i think like a week after the product hunt launch somebody actually i don't know who posted the same tagline that was in product hunt onto hacker news and we got an influx of traffic that was just nuts. And we got, I think within like two days, we were on the trending page. We got like 700 stars, something like that. And an influx of more feedback, more comments. So that was like the very first, let's say, step. With that step, we, we had enough early traction to raise some money and go full-time on this, right? With that money, we were able to build more features and constantly go back to Product Hunt, uh, to other third-party blogs and portals to talk more about us. And slowly, like that number of stars was growing. More people were interested in it. More people were now starting to build projects on top of Webany. We got some Fortune 500 names that were exploring Webany, gave us feedback, things like that, which was enough to kind of get some more money and hire a bigger team. And with that, we were also able to join Y Combinator as a Winter 21 batch. And in Y Combinator, we learned a ton again about not just fundraising, but product building, managing the team, what to look out for when hiring. And, and we had some great investors joining us through uh, after YC. Microsoft, Samsung, all of the investors saw the future in, in, in serverless infrastructure and saw us as one of the key pieces there. On the back of that, we started doing also a content marketing strategy. We found that is very effective. And there's a really good playbook called the 3H playbook by Google. It's hero hub hygiene. Those are the three types of articles. There's a infographic that shows you like, hey, you publish one hygiene article, the goal of that article is this, it, this is the, the, the topic that it should talk about. And then the others kind of build up on top of that. But that content marketing strategy allowed us to have a larger reach. And all of these things were kind of like a small spinning wheel, adding more traction, more users, more community members, more feedback, more products, uh, more leads for sales and things like that, right? That's one of the, the aspects that helped us kind of get to the, let's say, the stage we are currently at. And now the next stage is where we are focusing more on commercializing the, the, the project and uh, getting paying users onto the platform. But still, everything we do, 90% is going to be open sourced and done in public. So it's the very first time I've never heard of 3H content framework. What does a content look like for Webany perspective, like a hub or hero or how to? The thing is like 3H is that that's a playbook by Google, but it, it was, I think, originally designed for YouTube video creators, but it applies to generic uh, content strategy, right? So content strategy is all about producing content, right? But you need to have a strategy about it. That's where the 3H comes in. So basically you have three types of content you want to create. The hygiene is, let's say, a content you would do at least once a week or a couple of times a week. 
And the topic is something generic. So it's not about your product. But for example, because we are in JavaScript, we could talk about testing JavaScript applications or things like that, right? So we do not even introduce our product as part of the general article, but the author at the end work at Webany. And the, the point of this is to capture long tail organic with Google. And the second thing is we cross-publish that on different blogs and different forums and things like that to get more audience that's interested in the topic, right? Then you have a second type of a content, which is the hub content, which is a generic, let's say semi-generic title, but where you introduce your solution. An example would be building an e-commerce with Stripe checkout and Webany as a headless CMS, right? So everybody knows Stripe and checkout and it's e-commerce, right? But then we introduce Webany as the headless CMS powering the thing in the background. You might do one a month uh, type of an article uh, because it takes more time to develop. It's more longer, it's more of a tutorial, something like that. But through that, new people get introduced to your product and they learn about it, right? But you also piggyback on an existing adjacent public of users that use some parts of some other solutions like Stripe or in general JavaScript and things like that. The point of that one is, again, to get them to know your product and some of the capabilities of it. And then you have the hero content. Hero content would be once a quarter, once every six months. That's a product launch, for example. A massive product launch, usually followed by a promotional campaign, product hunt, hacker news, maybe paid sponsorships and things like that. And these bits all build on top of them, right? The hygiene is just 30 visits a, a month, maybe, right? The hub is 200 to 300 a month, right? The hero is a massive spike, right? But then over time, you're going to see that over 50 blog posts, you're getting a few thousand visits organically every single month. You just kind of build on top of it. And that works well, right? Because it costs in time. So every developer needs to write an engineering article. We need to cross-promote those articles, uh, get them into right, in front of the right eyeballs, push them through social channels. So it takes time, but it's, uh, it's one that if you don't do it, it still drives traffic after you've, you've paused it, unlike a paid campaign where you say stop and then everything just drops. <laughs> I guess that ties into the product because I think we talked about like how to get content marketing, the plan. Actually, that, that's only fascinating framework to think about how to do a content marketing. So going back to the main question, commercial open source, right? You need someone to pay you. Well, typically, you know, we've definitely seen many facets of changes during the industry. Like there's the support, now we have paid product, we have managed SaaS. In your, your case, you're talking about like the SaaS wasn't the main, main driver, right? There was actually the deployed in your, your customer's environment, right? For privacy sakes and stuff. So comes the question, like, what is your paid product? Then? Like what, how do you define it? And how do I understand from a customer point of view, what am I paying for? Do I get paid for supports plus product features that I'm not able to get from open source? Like, and you have, of course, the framework CMS, which makes it even more interesting. Tell us how you think about this paid product setup that you have. Yeah, so uh, for us, the journey was, let's say, organic. We had a lot of inbound leads that were looking at open source, but they were looking, hey, can you help us? Can you support us? And things like that. But through those conversations, we were digging, okay, what are some other features that you as a company would be interested in? What are the, the blocking things? And that's how we discovered the single sign-on, Nocta integrations, audit logs, uh, and things like that, alongside support. Support is really important to, for enterprises, right? 
So with that in mind, because we were having like a lot of those calls, we then decided to just open a landing page on our website called Pricing, where you have open source, free enterprise call us, right? And the enterprise was positioned as a set of additional features on top of the open source, like the, the ones for Okta, the ones for audit logs, the, the support on top of that, plus consultancy service. That's where we started, right? So it was like either free or like 50K or more per year, right? But that was a massive gap in between. We understood that that's going to leave a massive gap and we strategized because it's easy to de deliver support in those few enterprise features at a premium price, then building a whole plethora of self-serviceable features. But now, like once we launched the enterprise, we already have customers using it. We are now focusing for the last couple of months and throughout this next 12 months, we're focusing on building that self-serviceable product at a much lower price point because there are still some features uh, that we haven't launched in the open source, which makes sense for the self-serviceable community, like publishing workflows, ability to host multiple websites with one web instance, things like that. And those features, I mean, the pricing point there is going to be like free then nine bucks per user and onwards from there. But to build a self-serviceable product, it takes a lot more effort than just having open source plus support and call it enterprise, right? But now we understand that we need that aspect because a lot of the open source members were asking us, hey, I just need this feature and I don't think I'm going to pay you that amount of money, which perfectly makes sense. But we moved from open source to enterprise by talking to users and they told us how the enterprise offering should look like. And now we're talking to those people complaining enterprise is too expensive, open source doesn't give me what I need. And they're telling us what they need in that middle range set of features. And that's what we're now building. Again, all based on their feedback and uh, what they're telling us they need. Yeah, and just based on the user journey that you're kind of describing, super interested in how you actually track your journey from like free users to paid. And if there's like certain activity that you look for, or if you nurture some of your free users to just kind of manage that. There are a number of platforms now that help commercial open source companies think about how to monetize their community and what that pipeline looks like because it is very different from a go-to-market standpoint. And wondering if you're using those platforms or if you've kind of created your own funnel. There's a couple of things there. So one are the metrics you use to track the product usage. For that, we have a telemetry implementation, but it's all anonymous because that's the challenge with, with just being purely open source is you don't want to invade the privacy too much. But at the same time, you need to know how people are using your product, what are the features they are using, how often they are using. So you know, do you have a good product or a bad product or where in that funnel they're being stuck? For example, we're tracking the funnel on, hey, I'm creating a WebNI project. I've successfully created a WebNI project. I'm now deploying a WebNI project to my AWS cloud. I've now successfully deployed a project to my AWS cloud. And there's a funnel, right? And there's like from creating a project to actually successfully deploying, there might be like a 50% success rate. In general, multiple people tried multiple times, but that tells us, hey, the setup could be improved, right? Now on the commercial side, identifying who from the community is interested in paying, we just look at the conversation. We have listed the set of features that are in enterprise, which are not in open source in our website. And that is a great starting point because that informs them, hey, there is this feature, multi-tenancy, for example. Then they go on 
uh, onto the Slack and ask, hey, can I use this in open source? Hey, can what like how does it work and things like that, right? They start the conversation there. And uh, what we do in terms of the the go to market, uh, what we see it working well for us uh, because we're selling to enterprises, the sandwich approach. Usually there is an incentive, either starting at the top or at the bottom. Let's say it's starting at the bottom up. A developer in an organization has been tasked to find a solution for their mobile app to manage the, let's say they're looking for a headless CMS. They discover Webany, they play with Webany, they might have an issue here and there. They go to our Slack, they ask a few questions, then they come back. And we see through either their email or LinkedIn profile that they are working in an organization. But we're not invading, right? We're just supporting them. And then suddenly they say, hey, we now kind of would like to discuss commercials, right? And that's when they bring in somebody as operations manager or somebody that's more on the top end that wants to discuss commercial support models, agreements, and things like that. But the combo of them two being aligned within that organization that they want to purchase from us is the best situation you can get into, right? And that's what we found works as a best success. Sometimes the conversation might start from the top where they are interested in, and then they bring in their developers, which join our Slack and start kind of looking under the hood and testing out the platform. At this point, we're not too invasive. We approach them at the right time. Or if we see that, hey, I'm in production, I'm getting stuck, uh, like I need to resolve this urgency, but they're a free customer. We will still assist them, right? But then we're going to go, hey, look, we usually don't do this. If you need that type of support, we got commercial kind of models for you. But I mean, this time we're just helping you out, right? So, but I would say like it's centered a lot around our Slack and works really good. The other aspect is, that we didn't think it's going to work that great, but it works amazingly. Is this is just a book a call button on our website, right? It's an open source project, but there's a book a call button. And a lot of people use that button, right? So we go on a lot of calls. Now, there's upside and a downside to that. Some of these leads, yes, there are leads, but some are not. Some are just kind of wanting to learn more and things like that, right? But through that, we flip it around. Okay, I might not sell to that person, but... I might get valuable insight and feedback. Let's do that. Let's ask the right questions. Let's ask what, what features would product. Just get the conversation going. Sometimes it might be a partnership opportunity because they are an agency building for somebody else and things like that, right? It's all kind of in that top of the funnel for us. Now, for when we introduce the self-serviceable model, we'll probably look at scaling things, bringing more traffic, making sure that the book a call is more enterprise focused while the People that can't actually afford enterprise but need some of the paid features can go for the self-serviceable model automatically without actually needing to kind of call us and get feedback from us. Those are the channels that are working for us at the moment. Those are organic and we will kind of, as the project grows, grow organically as well. You talk on your site about having an amazing developer experience and we hear about companies that will say that all the time. And What does that mean to you? Yeah, so that is one thing that is an ongoing thing, right? So one thing is, for example, our project is based on TypeScript type definitions, which means that, hey, I tell you, you need to implement this function or this object to write a plugin. TypeScript gives you that type definition that tells you exactly what values that object takes and what is the object type and things like that. That small thing means day and night difference to the developer in terms of their experience. So these are some of the things we look at. The other things are providing just appropriate documentation, which we're still working on and trying to improve, right? But having that ability for developer to customize and learn about our platform from our 
be that architecture, be that how to extend certain bits, that is an important part of the developer experience. Because when you think about where does their journey start? Hey, I want to do something. Hey, WebNU looks cool. It could support this use case. Let me now install it. Let me now see how I can customize this bit, right? And they're going to go to the documentation. And if there's a, a tutorial or an article that does exactly even better, but then as they go through the tutorial and read things, they will open their code editor and open up WebNU. That's where they're going to start typing. Now that's, again, coming to my very first point, what also matters there is that we have those integration ports, that we have those SOGs, lifecycle events, so they can change how the stuff gets stored in the database, that they can change, hey, this is the default behavior of this button, but if you want to attach another behavior, you can do that because it's all about providing that ability to customize in a maintainable way, right? Because you can always open up and rip out the code and put something of your own in there. But on the next update, we're going to break all of that, right? You need to have a proper architecture for that. I would say that documentation and code is the main definition of what we find for developer experience. And you constantly improve on that. Like people go now Slack and they ask questions. And if we see a pattern in questions, it's going to be, hey, why is there a pattern? Let's add a troubleshooting section to this article because like 10% of people get caught with this error, right? This is the thing. Like you constantly go back and iterate and like M1 Max got launched and suddenly there's an influx of people having trouble installing because this one plugin has this version, which is not compatible with M1s and there's like a ton of complicated workarounds. But hey, you can just, we add a troubleshooting section and a small snippet how to get around that. It's that process of constantly evolving your documentation. So they're watching for those patterns. But the base of line of that is that people need to have a channel to channel those back to you. Awesome. And we wanted to spend a few minutes talking through your fundraising journey. And maybe if we can start with YC and how, from your experience, YC assesses open source project-based companies. Because one of the things we've seen at a lot of VCs is those that are focused on infrastructure companies or open source-based companies is they'll track GitHub and look at projects that are popular and they have a pretty good understanding of what's gaining momentum and, and just general traction in projects beforehand. Was that kind of your experience going through YC as well? We applied to YC twice with the project. The first time we were... We got into the last round and we were called to San Francisco for the last interview, which didn't went well. We didn't go in, but it pointed out to some crucial holes that the YC partners found, but they told us reapply next year, right? We didn't reapply that year, that batch, but the batch after that, and we applied really, really early, right? We were one of the first companies that applied into the batch and you get a very different YC experience then because when you apply with towards the end of the batch, you get bundled into, hey, there's a call every 10 minutes and it's like on a track. Everything feels rushed. Partners there are more challenging and more rushing with questions. But if you apply early, it's more relaxed, right? They are more relaxed. They're not in a rush. We gave our best to better prepare for the interview and have all those numbers, right? Yes, they did ask about the traction. How do we see the traction? We had GitHub uh, metrics, but we also had leads at Fortune 500, people giving us feedback, people from big organization giving us feedback. So that was one good point of traction. We did have a vision of the commercial aspect of the product. Like, I think the main reason why they found us interesting in the beginning is that serverless aspect. Serverless is a big shift in infrastructure, right? It's going to be, applications are going to be, be built, right? And we are at the very kind of 
point of that movement, trying to pioneer a lot of uh, these solutions because we don't have tutorials to learn from others because nobody has done many of these things before us, right? And that's what YC saw. That saw that there's a big innovation aspect to what we're doing and the uniqueness to all other solutions that we're bringing to the market. And a combination of these factors, plus knowing your numbers, knowing the market, knowing the competition, having a vision, presents you as a a very confident team. And that's what YC wants to see, that you can execute and survive eventually. And so I guess let's talk about your journey. Because you, you definitely applied to YC a couple of times. You start from consulting, go into the project, go into the company. I mean, it's, it's definitely a very interesting journey because I think even though there, we definitely see quite a few founders went from consulting to open source framework and, and companies, it still feels like everyone feels like it's a big chunk. You know, it's definitely not what they learned before. They have a lot of like learnings when it comes to fundraising. They got surprised or what, what people are thinking about. It's then running a team that's trying to support all this. What is your personal biggest learnings, you know, that you found yourself have to grow the most? I would say there's a couple of things there. First, before I started my digital agency, I was a coder, right? I was a developer and engineer for a couple of years. And suddenly now I had to figure out how do you actually run a business and what goes into running a business, like sales pipelines, uh, accountancy stuff, uh, taxes, all of that ridiculous stuff, but it eats up a ton of your time, right? So it meant figuring out the admin side of things, then figuring out how do you hire people? How do you motivate people? How do you put a common goal in front of everybody and get them excited about it, right? So that was kind of one aspect that I did early on in my years. And then I've learned through working with enterprises, how do you actually work with those large organizations, what goes into selling into them, what are the legal requirements, the constraints, the nuances there. You'll be surprised the amount of money that goes on lawyers and legal fees and insurances and compliance certificates. These are all just constantly new things that you open up and get surprised, right? And then the fundraising aspect is one that I kind of didn't have a clue about how do you fundraise anything. And it was just like, okay, let's go fundraise. <laughs> what do I do? Right. And that's where I just started kind of putting together a, a rough pitch deck and just emailing it around. At that point, it was like pre-COVID when we raised our first pre-seed and you could still kind of do face-to-face. -face. And I met with a couple of people around London and constantly kind of learned, okay, this is the feedback, let's iterate the deck. This is the feedback, let's iterate the deck until we kind of got that investment from episode one at uh, that time. And uh, then you enter YC and they teach you, okay, there's a bit more to strategizing. How do you actually raise a good round? And being able to actually execute successfully on that YC strategy, which is public on their website, uh, if you look it up, YC kind of uh, fundraising guide, it's day and night difference into the outcome you're going to get by employing that strategy, right? Because suddenly all of the leverage is on your side. And we said no to several investors because we could. We were able to build up that demand and build a competitive market within two weeks after our YC demo day. And we were able to iterate on the pitch sometimes you know, three or four times a day, purely because we had like 20 calls lined up back to back. And we could see the differences really quickly. And that caused that whole, let's say, fear of missing out effect was created. And 
that helps a lot, providing a good round. But at the end of the day, it's also in the investor's yeah, sure, the investor gets maybe slightly lower terms, but it's investors' interest that we raise more money in the good terms because that eventually means the business will be more successful, right? So that's kind of also another aspect to look at it. It was a journey. YC did help a lot, especially the partners there. On the next round, well, there's no YC, so it's all about metrics. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this with us. It was a great conversation. Awesome. Thank you, guys. It was my pleasure. I enjoyed the interview.